Here at The Regenerative Journey, we know that good health is related to good food and good practices, but understand that sometimes the right food choices are quite hard to put into place. But our good buddy, Cindy O'Meara at the Nutrition Academy is helping people break old habits to create a much healthier lifestyle. So in support of what she's doing, we're offering a $100 discount to all our listeners. Simply enroll in their functional nutrition course and enter the coupon CHARLIE100, that's CHARLIE100, the Nutrition Academy, say goodbye to old food habits and hello to a much healthier, happier life. Uh, the day is all about being kind to others and, and I think as a society if we can be kinder uh, we'll all get along a lot better and all lead much happier lives and um, again comes back to bloody pride and ego the two most powerful things in the world it's what starts world wars and it's what stops neighbours talking to each other That was Stuart Austin and you're listening to The Regenerative Journey We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and internationally and their continuing connection to country, culture, community, land, sea and sky. And we pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. G'day, I'm your host Charlie Arnott, an 8th generational Australian regenerative farmer. And in this podcast series, I'll be diving deep and exploring my guests' unique perspectives on the world so you can apply their experience and knowledge to cultivate your own transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with your host, Charlie Arnott. Don't forget our spring Intro to Biodynamics workshops are coming up fast. We are at Hanamino in Borowa in New South Wales on the 7th and 8th of October, then travel to Victoria in mid-October, Tasmania in late October, with our last workshop for the year in the beautiful Margaret River in WA during late November. All are welcome, urban gardeners, broadacre farmers, graziers, viticulturists alike. No previous experience required as Hamish and Charlie cover it all. For more details, check out our website www.charliearnett.com com.au and follow the events link. G'day. This week's episode is with Stuart Austin. I've known Stuart for a couple of, at least I met him three years ago at Beef Week uh, up there in Rocky. Uh, did a little interview with him, but and uh, sat him down for for a good session uh, uh, this morning um, to talk about his life. Um, he did say, um, it was lovely to hear that he said he'd never really sort of opened up as much about that or told his story as, as, as in as much detail as he did in the interview. Uh, we talked about his um, upbringing, influences in his life, he, a lot of time spent up in um, in northern, uh, northern Australia on some stations up there, the influence on him um, and other individuals in his life, um, transitioning sort of well, back down to... Uh, Eastern Australia and, and the work he's doing at um, with Wilmot Cattle Co um, and the initiatives he's put in place was just we went all over the place as we as we tend to do but um, all the places we went were, were fantastic. We touched on mental health and something we didn't touch on. Um, unfortunately, we ran out a bit of time. Was the influence, um, the impact that the grazing for profit course, the, the resource consulting service um, uh, course that. Stu and I have both done, um, and the impact it had on him has you know, been uh, been wonderful. Is a knock at the door. Um, anyway, I trust that uh, uh, this interview uh, with Stu Austin is uh, you enjoyed as much as I did. 
Stuart Austin, welcome to the Regenerative Journey and welcome to Room 14 at, where are we? Stockman's Motel. Appropriately named motel, that's for sure. (laughs) In Tamworth. Thank you, Stockman's, for providing the location for today's interview is with Stu, who um, uh, we were were, um, at uh, Windy Station yesterday. Um, and um, which we might get to talking about in a minute, but um, we, uh, we we were staying in the same hotel, and this is one of the few opportunities we've actually had to catch up, Stu, and had the time. Yeah, and look, uh, need to make a public apology for uh, formal apology <laughs> for blowing you off, you know, whenever it was when in the first series, and I was just too busy. Uh, That's fine. Had I known the stardom that it might have created back then. I would have made far more time, mate. But um, <coughs> you it's funny that we don't cross paths more often. No, it's a bit sad, to be honest, because um, <coughs> we're we're operating in the very well the same and similar space. And but I guess it's just geography, logistics. Um, you're actually not. You know, I spend a lot of time at Byron Bay, and you're you're only what four and a half hours away when the yeah. roads open. Yep. Uh, and I don't spend much time in Byron Bay. No, you don't. Not enough. Mate, you, exactly. have to, you have to think of that's some, the, That's more the point. You have to take time. Trish and the kids up there more often, mate. When she hears yep. this, she'll go, yes, Stuart, you yeah. should do that <laughs> every month. That's it. <clears throat> um, so, mate, let's we, – we, as, as I am known to do, I like to in, in, uh, introduce – I like to interview my guests in their happy place, you know, on the veranda of their home, on their farm, in their place of work um, – we haven't actually achieved that, achieved that today. But what I have achieved um, is we're looking. I've, I've got a. I've got a. Um, I didn't get the king. The king spa suite that you had last night, but <laughs> my, my basic room uh, does look out to the west, and we're looking at um, a paddock. It was not only, well, there's a bit of a paddock there, but there's grass that I was reflecting on this morning, thinking that that the way they've mown that it actually looks like a lot of the Australian landscape for most of the year. Which, yep. is, which might, might be something we can talk about, but mate, we've done our best. We've got, we're looking out. Uh, we've got at least grass and some trees to look at. Um, so that's as good as it gets today. Yep, and uh, I think I can take you there to Wilmot. We can, yeah. Know, when I start talking about the place, that, you know, it, as as I think I did yesterday about Morocco, you know, you when you love what you do so much and um, you know enjoy where you live and. and uh, Feel so grateful to be there. I suppose it's easy to talk about. So. Well, let's take take us there because my first question is um, is about you know what does it mean to you to be in the Australian landscape in specifically uh, Wilmot where you where you live. And I know you've got um, uh, Wilmot uh, Cattle Co has a um, number of properties up this part of the world. But you know we're sitting at the veranda at your place. What are we? What are we thinking about? What are you? What are you? What are you talking to me about there? Um, when you look out at your Longhorn <laughs> cattle, those boys—they're uh, they're beautiful cattle and uh, good fun to have out the back door. Um, oh, you know, at the core of it is, as a, uh, I think I just mentioned a minute ago, it's a, such a privilege to manage a, um, such a spectacular property. You know, it's, I don't take it for granted any day of the week. Uh, and every time I drive around that farm or, you know, I'm in the paddock, um, I just feel so bloody lucky, really, so fortunate that, uh, to be managing, you know, in a broader, a broader context of the Australian landscape, that um, that small piece of it, and, and I feel a huge responsibility to, to make sure that it's well looked after. Um, 
as we do with you know our other two farms. So um, that you know that and that's what gets me out of bed every day is, is the uh, privilege to manage um, part of the landscape in Australia that we do and and the opportunity to restore the ecology of it. <clears throat> it's probably a few days in winter you don't want to get out of bed though. It gets pretty fresh up there, doesn't it? Look, I can find out nowadays my role is um, predominantly office-based and it's amazing how much work I have to do in the winter. Uh, yeah, end of financial year, it's a busy time of year, <laughs> get budgeting, the or, you know. Get, uh, yeah, G- Jimmy probably uh, wonders what I'm doing there. <laughs> he see you like once a week, you pop your head out, you're right, Jimmy. <laughs> yeah, mate, no worries. Um so, and you're dead right. I mean, I have had the pleasure of, of being um, uh, uh, visiting Wilmot a number of times now. You're you're famous, uh, and you've done them for uh, three years now. Um, three years now. Yep. Your your Wilmot Furl days in uh, sort of February February March. Um, or oh, no, you had one in. You had one. Well, in it was April this year. It won't be next year. It'll be back to February. <clears throat> yeah. A oh, good call. Thank you. <clears throat> Can you um, just make sure Al knows? Is he now? Al knows. He knows. He knows. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so I've been to the, the first two, Mr. One this year, um, and I visited another couple of times um, uh, when when I was there, and we had um, uh, Patrick Holden, who was there yep. at, at one point. So anyway, so um, beautiful property. We had to look at the – you've got some amazing waterfall, just a beautiful part of the world that is um, – you've had some challenges there too with the bushfire a couple of years ago, um, which we can get to, but – no, I have to say, um, if you ever have the opportunity to get to one of the, the field days there in February um, every year, then I absolutely encourage you to do that because it's a wonderful group of speakers, just a wonderful location um, to be there. And, um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll make sure when you do get the dates right next year, we'll pump them out for our listeners. Yep, for sure. Let's, um, let's launch into your... Um, your regenerative journey, Stu, like early, take us back as far as you want to go to any poignant moments that sort of um, any starting points, maybe the day of your birth, which is probably not, you know, a day you particularly remember much about. Well, I don't know, but look, full disclosure, I was actually born in Victoria, which I, you know, I'd, now it's, it's out there, right? Um, oh, my God. Um, well, that was a lovely interview, Stu. You know, <laughs> we love Victoria. We love Victorians. We do, we do. Uh, but I, I was lucky enough to grow up in Albury. We moved to Albury when I was young um, and on a small farm outside town there when I was probably, I don't know, 10, I suppose, 10 or 11, uh, just a little block that we leased. And um, my my father bred uh, working dogs, so that was, that was what we did on that little block. Um Spent a lot of time feeding the dogs, a lot of time. Um, <laughs> was that one of your like more chores? than was that one of your chores, your jobs for the day or the morning, job, yeah. morning, night? Yeah. Yeah. Do you get yes. paid? Do you get paid like a couple of cents a dog or something? Look, you know, it's probably a, a place best not gone. But uh, <laughs> there was an arrangement that uh, that you know. It was uh, it was an arrangement. Anyway, uh, I spent. There was oh, some remuneration, correct? Um, but I did. My grandfather, mum's father, had a place in the Upper Murray and that was probably um, where my formative years were spent. Um, you know, as I was, when I was a teenager, uh, every bloody spare weekend, any time, every school holidays, there was a mail bus run from Albury up to Gingelic and I was on the bus at half past one on a Friday afternoon and, and came back on 10 o'clock on Monday morning. Um, and he was, you know, my grandfather uh, was, you know, 
by far the most influential person in my life when I was at that age. Um, age, like primary school? Teenager. Teenager. Uh, okay. When you need that most guidance, I suppose, in your life. Um, he was an incredible uh, man who was um, an outstanding gentleman and taught me, you know, severely instilled some um, core values in me that I try to aspire to every day still now. Um, so, you know, uh, he... He actually managed a big place up there for 20-odd years and then he bought a place um, where that they had for about 20 years. And, uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time, everybody, a spare minute up there. Um, so that was, you know, that was my um, foundation in the beef industry, I suppose, and I blame him for me, buddy, being here. But uh, <laughs> I, I feel very, very lucky that uh, that I am here, so... And what happened then? So down, so formative years down south, um, cutting your teeth on dogs and cattle, uh, and then up north. I um, we went up north on a family holiday in nineteen ninety one. Mum put uh, mum and dad put four kids and, and them in the in the old Ford station wagon. Uh, and the the one memory I have of that trip was mum when whoever was sitting in the front was either my little sister or I. Whoever was in the the dicky seat in the middle. Uh, <laughs> Sit still, don't turn around. Sit still, don't turn around. You break your neck, you break your neck. Sit still, don't turn around. The whole way because the seat only came up to here, you know. Oh, the back of the seat <laughs> in the Ford. <laughs> was it a Ford Falcon? It was the old Falcon station wagon. Yeah. Uh, yeah anyway, it was a great trip. We we spent three weeks or a month, I think. We went right up through Queensland and then back down through the centre. And but we went to Newcastle Waters, who um, Sal Warner uh, and Mum nursed together in nineteen. Oh, I'd get the date wrong here. It was the late 60s, I think Careful. early 70s. Careful. Yeah, so, you know, it was a little while ago. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so, and they were great mates. And um, so, I had that connection there at Newcastle Waters. So, when I left school, um, this was back in the days before uh, emails, um, wrote it. I actually, I think I typed a, a cover letter, application letter. Um, With your jump, 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 jump. Typed it up on the very old. Yep. And. Um, Sent that up there, applied for a job there, basically in the stock camp, and was lucky enough to get a start. Um, was going up there for a year. I'd got into rural science at UNE um, on an early entry, and I think my marks weren't quite good enough to actually get in had I not got that early entry spot, but got this start at uni that mum and dad were determined that I needed to get. And so sorry, you did. How many years were? You, well, I went up north for a year, and I was cut, yeah. and I was doing the gap year thing, you know. And coming yeah. Back to uni. So you deferred? That, I did. Yeah, you deferred. Okay, if I had that year up there, deferred uh, the course. And I had such a good time that I tried to defer again, and they wouldn't let me. So I said, "Well, I'm sorry, but I'm enjoying where I'm at far more than I am, you know, think I will at uni." So stayed up there, and um, ended up doing nearly five years up there, and um, that just went very quiet. Is that still working? Yeah. Well, my headset did. Did it? You can't hear? No. Still not hearing? No. Oh, hang on. Hang on, people. Oh, there you go. Yeah, it might be some little loose connection there. It's not that old, this gear. Is that all right? That's better. Yeah, yeah cool. Sorry. Fire and ready. Um, so I had I had nearly five years up there, and uh, same thing. I worked for some um, really capable people up there, some pretty bloody hard men uh, in those first few years. Um, so um, at all at Newcastle Waters there? Five oh, years there? No, I did two and a half years, I think it was, with CPC. Um, and by the third year, uh, then I went to Kalani and was running a stock camp there. Um, at the grand old age of 21, responsible for seven or eight um, 
girls and boys, basically, who are all also very young uh, in a very remote environment. I think back now that, you know, I didn't see anyone die, but I saw some... It's a reality show right there. It, it, it is, mate. It's a, it's, I, I, after I left up there and, you know, people ask you what it's like and the only thing I could liken it to probably was being in the army where you live, eat, sleep and breathe with the same crew of blokes mm. for weeks on end. Mm. Um, you know, you, you absolutely bust your ass working. Uh, it's a, but it's a real, um, oh, it's, a, it's a fantastic uh, place for young people to, to really um, spend some time, I suppose, not so much cut their teeth, but spend some time and just learn about how, you know, understand initiative and how you've got to think for yourself and, you know, mum's not going to do your washing anymore and, and like, grow up bloody quick and, and turn kids into adults. Um, any any sort of stories from that time? I mean, I guess anything you learnt or that you could, um, you know, because I, I trust that that still happens up there, that there's still, you know, I mean, I, I imagine the numbers are probably a bit lower potentially, whether that's because they're not turning up or, or um, the jobs are changing a little bit with a bit more technology, but, you know, what what are some of the things that you learned in that in that time about yourself? Well, one or of the um, uh, biggest changes in my life happened um, when I was twenty one, I reckon. Uh, after my third year up there, and I'd had about six months running a stock camp, and I ran a camp or tried to run a camp um, the way the blokes that I'd worked for ran camps, which was not terribly pleasant. Uh, not not a, very. Nice people to work for, uh, very hard men basically. Who yeah. you know, the only time you knew you were doing the right thing was when you weren't getting a tune up. Basically, right. There wasn't a great deal of um, calm instruction. It was more yelling, yelling when you weren't doing the right thing. Yeah, okay, sure. Uh, which can you know? I, I, <laughs> I used to often think about the word effective communication. We all, you know, it's often thrown around about how to be an effective communicator. And, I used to think back to those days. I used to think, well, they were very effective, and so the, the, the use of the word "effective" can be can be taken quite out of context quite quickly. Uh, yeah, good call. So um, anyway, I and I left up there that year, and uh, it was actually um, coincidentally the, the year that Trish and I first had a relationship. We met at Kalani, and um, had she a, there um, working working in the yeah. camp yeah, as a jewellery. Oh, nice. <coughs> uh, anyway. Um, she quite unceremoniously um, left me at the end of that year, which I was quite devastated by, uh, young love. And, um, and I also uh, didn't have, you know, many of those blokes that had worked for me or girls that year that had worked for me coming back again the next year. And, and that was always a reflection of how good a head stock you were, right, was how much of your crew was coming back next year to, to go again. Uh, that's a bit of a benchmark, isn't it? So, API. Yeah, exactly. And... and uh, I'd been home for a couple of weeks and I, and I really started to think about it. I thought, Jesus, you know... Um, maybe it's me. Mm. Uh, and my father's a fairly, um, uh, what's the word? He's a, he, he has a, a different personality, I suppose, and, and I was reminded of um, his personality by some of my early headstockmen and that I was potentially heading down a similar path, which was not terribly, a terribly pleasant person to be around at times. So um, I, there was a bit of inner reflection that was, you know, I suppose looking back now, thinking about thinking about yourself when you're 21, there's probably not many people do that, but um, I did. And I can't remember how that came about. My sister gave me a book called You, Inc., written by John McGrath. 
uh, and that book changed my life. I, I basically said um, uh, it was all about being, you know, far more positive person, how to create an enjoyable workplace, his story around, um, you know, going from a uh, aspiring football player at university, broke his leg, ruined his footy career, stumbled around in the, in the wilderness for a while and then decided he wanted to be the world's best real estate agent. Uh, oh, and McGrath. Um, okay. from McGraw Real Estate. Mm. So he went to the States, um, interned for the best real estate agent in the US, and now he's got an amazing, um, you know, an amazing business. Yeah. Uh, so there's all these things in there, right, about how to create a really positive workplace culture. And he was in a you know real estate agent's office in Sydney, and I was running a stock camp in the Northern Territory. And some of the things that are there, right, he, he talked about goals. So he said, write your goals out and stick them. He said, I laminate them and stick them on the wall in my shower. He said, I have a shower twice a day, so I read my goals twice a day. And I thought, well, I have a shower under mm. a quillibar tree with a tarp around it in the dark, so I probably won't be able to read them. But I did have to write my diary every night, so I did it all in all these big colourful pens and, and wrote a few goals and stuck them in my diary and every night when I turned the page over there. So that was it. Did a, you move? Did, I'm, I'm interested in that. So they were on one sheet and you just moved them forward like a day? A, so like a bookmark. Turn, yeah, yeah. Uh, good. That's a great idea. Yeah. So. Um, <clears throat> Uh, anyway, so and I came up with this motto of positive perfection, um, where I wanted to be uh, our camp to be, you know, the best camp basically, and and have a few benchmarks and a few goals to aspire to, knowing that we recognising that we would never be perfect, but if we aspired to be perfect, we'd be the best, um, and a much more positive culture. I wanted people patting each other on the back all day and really pumping each other's tires up, and and um, and a real positive. Uh, you know, helping people all the time every day, teaching these young guys everything that they needed to know so that they could do their job to the best of their ability um, rather than, the you know, where I had come from where it was you had to bloody figure it out yourself and, and mm. like I say, you know, if you didn't figure it out, you heard about it until you did figure it out. Then yeah, you didn't right. much all. And, and I remember there was actually a pretty pivotal moment. There was a girl who had been there the year before and she was, um, she'd was she gone away and done a chopper licence and came back the next year. She used to come back on weekends and give us a hand and she was great with the wieners and, and we did a lot of wiener education then, um, which I really enjoyed. And I said to her one afternoon, we were in the yards just tidying up and I said, I've got to go, but um, would you mind just uh, putting those wieners away and a couple of other jobs? And she kind of looked at me and she said, what the hell's wrong with you? And I said, what do you mean? She said, why are you being so nice or something? <laughs> and I said, well, this is, I said, you know, I've changed. And it was a real, I'll never forget it. It was like she was just was shocked that I was speaking to her so nicely. And, and, and your uh, your language was different. Yeah. Your, and your approach. You yeah. were using like maybe please and thank you. Exactly. Yeah. As opposed to, what I mean, what would you have said to her? Um, and I want to take you back. And oh, I don't want Jesus. <clears throat> just quickly, this might hurt a little bit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I would have been a lot more direct. No, but I mean, I'm, I'm, you, can use, you, can use, you can use whatever words, whatever colourful words you need. Oh, I'm just interested because it is, it's really important language. Isn't it? Oh, you know? you know, I would have been in a hurry. I would have said, put those winners away, feed those cattle, um, have your horses ready for tomorrow. Uh, that, was, that was, yeah. And... People will be wondering which wieners, which yard, where do you want them to go? Um, what are we, what cattle are we feeding hay to? Um, what horse do we need tomorrow? What's are we going mustering or are we just tailing wieners? Uh, and you, you just kind of go right, and they'd stumble off, and then the next day when they had the wrong horse, and they'd hear about it, or that they'd fed the wrong one of cattle, they'd hear about it. So it was always going to be their fault, correct? And so it was a so. Even I, I realised that. <coughs> excuse me. Um, 
people needed a bit more direction, right, and a bit more clarity. And, again, it comes back to that effective communication around, you know, <coughs> excuse me, um, be that mob of cattle and, you know, we're going mastering tomorrow. This is where we're going at daylight. Um, to put it day, in context. You know, 15Ks, blah, blah, blah. Make sure you ride that horse or that horse. And, you know, the, that cut that you broke in last week is probably not going to be suitable, blah, blah, blah. You know, just a bit more context exactly around what we're doing, what we're getting up to. And you, and, and this was your first in, in sort of um, uh, engagement with her since you'd been back. Yeah, so she, she, really she used to only come back on weekends, that sort of thing. So, yeah, right. um, yeah, she hadn't sort of seen any exposure to it. She's gone, where's that, where's that other stew, stew off and yeah, gone? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, excuse so me. just on that, then, then what, what were you thinking? Like, when she said that to you? Um, oh, you know, I suppose it was a um, little moment of recognition or reflection that I had changed that people and someone had really noticed it. Um, because of what, there was a couple of guys who, a couple of really young guys, like um, Stewie Webster was only um, 13, 14, young indigenous uh, kid from Kununurra. Mm. Very, very handy person. Um, one of the most naturally gifted people I've seen with uh, horses or cattle, and he was my main man. He was, uh, you know, at that age. Um, and so he was back. And um, another young guy from um, Brisbane, Nick De Pasquale, who now uh, runs a very successful contracting and, and mustering company up there, um, who came out of Brisbane who had never been on a horse in his life uh, the year before. So those two guys are still there. So they they saw that change, I suppose, from year one to year two. Um, but they were the only two that, that had seen it. And the others, it was, you know, it was just they'd turned up for probably a better bloke to work for that year than, than the blokes had turned up the year before to work for a, not such a good bloke. So... Um, and girls, you know, we had the, that's one of the biggest things that's changed up there is there's more girls than blokes up there nowadays. Um, is that right? What yeah. do you think that is? Um, I don't know. They got, I, I ran a recruitment business when I was in Canada and we used to get 70% girls apply for jobs and they just had the initiative to put together a resume and a cover letter and some information and, and get themselves sorted where um, as blokes we tend to kind of just figure it out as we go. I think we're just going to sail into a job. Yeah. yeah. Um, and just to, just to put things in a context for our international listeners, um, uh, where you were, just explain where you were in terms of Australia, the the, the state and the in the area, because it's not yep. it's not just down the road so, from where we are. It's a fair <laughs> way away. No. So the Northern Territory is the, the central northern part of Australia, uh, and the so Newcastle waters was. 400 kilometres south of Catherine on the Stewart Highway. Kalani was 300 k south of Catherine down the Buntine. Um, uh, Kalani, I think, was a bit over probably one and a half million acres or thereabouts. Um, Newcastle Waters is 10,000 square kilometres, right, So, which is 100 kilometres by 100 kilometres, and it was fairly well a square block. So that's sort of the scale of the operation, and I used to think mm-hmm. about that down here. You know, that's like driving from here to Gunnedah to, I don't know, Cooler across the bloody scone or something. It's big, isn't All it? All one place. Um, hey, you know what? I can hear that bloody fridge. Can you hear that fridge? I can hear that, no. zzz, that fridge. I want to ask you a question. <clears throat> I want you to keep going. I'm going to run out there and turn that fridge off. Right. I reckon I can hear that little, you know, the bloody, the, the shelves in it rattle? Yeah, right. Um, I better give you a question to, to answer <laughs> then. Um, let's talk about, uh, we, we, we're jumping around a bit, but what about women in agriculture? I want to, well, you just touched on it there. Give us, you know, it's interesting that, as you say, you know, they've got the 
well, the intelligence, absolutely, to, to, you know, and the and the the initiative to go and write themselves a good CV, CV and then do it. I mean, what what's your sort of thoughts on, you know, women in ag today? Um, just pretend I'm here for a minute. Hang for on. sure. Here you go. Uh, they have a huge role to play, and, and I mean, we um, we have uh, Trish works in our business, and Tata's uh, Lisa, who's our admin girl, um, and I work I work with so many capable women. Um, up north, uh, down here, you know, everywhere we go, we see um, uh, come across very capable women, and it's, I suppose, it's you know, what I used to find up north was um, they. Uh, it was challenging for them to take that step into a headstockman role, and there's only a few that did um, or be given that opportunity for whatever reason. Uh, like I say, just as capable as any as any bloke. Um, plenty of them more capable than most blokes. Um, and so, I think then you know the the career path of them was was a, for the women was a bit more unsure. Where you know if you look at the hierarchy up there, most of the stockmen are blokes, most managers are blokes, and so for a young bloke up there, it's you got somewhere a, to go. There's a pretty clear direction <coughs> to where you can get to. Yeah. Um, and the other part of it then too uh, that I have found is is um, having children that you know, and particularly for Trish, you know, she was at a um, she's had a wonderful career and and she really has um, pushed herself and um, developed an enormous amount of knowledge. Uh, she's a, she's I'm sure she's bloody smarter than me. She's got more degrees oh, to her name. No, than she, I do. she is. Mate. She is smarter than me. <laughs> correct. Uh, and all but our, I know all our, all our wives and partners generally are correct. <laughs> yes, uh, I know that's been challenging for her. Where she, you know, she's just got a got a tea stuck into something, and then mm. we decide to have another child. So happening again in a few weeks, and and yeah. uh, but there won't be any more after that. So then she can get back to to uh, <laughs> getting stuck in her career. But um, so it's that's a challenging thing. And I used to I was involved in some young farming groups, and it was the same thing. You know, that we were all. There's that stage in life, I think, from maybe it's 25 to 35, where you, you've had those few years out of school, you might have been to uni, you've had a few jobs, you're kind of figuring out what you want to do. Um, you get involved in some of those groups and then all of a sudden you get a new job or um, you get married or you're having children and all of a sudden your ability or, or time, um, prioritisation of your time changes. Mm. Um, and I think it's a, you know... I, I, I think I probably did the same through those that ten year period. Really um, chopped and turned a bit, I suppose. And and uh, I was involved in some young farming groups. And it was the same thing. There was times where I just had to say, "Look, I'm sorry, but I've been very committed to this group, but I've actually got to step away because I've, I've got other priorities that are more important." Um, and it's you know, and I look at our state farming organisations now; they're largely made up of of an older generation, uh, which and they're all crying out for young people to get involved, but. I'm in exactly that same situation where I'm not quite 40 and we've got three little kids um, and I just can't justify you know, adding that to the to the mix of um, extracurricular activities, I suppose. I, suppose. So. I want to get back to that, <clears throat> I guess, and the, the word there is prioritising, you know, what, what's important and what's urgent and all those things. Um, let's get back to your stories, Stu. You're, you're up in... Um, uh, you're up north... There's a change in your behaviour that's that's sort of reflected in, I guess, other people are seeing that. And how how was the how was your change in behaviour reflected in your workplace? 
Uh, it was very well supported for a start. I'm, I mean, um, I went back up there uh, after I read that book and I was, I was actually on the plane back to Darwin reading most of that book and I had the old elder's notebook out writing all these notes and the things I was going to do. And I used to put write positive quotes on the fridge um, in the stock camp or jokes on the fridge, you know, just to add a bit more, a bit of something different to the camp. And um, anyway, I sat down with our manager up there who was, um, who's now my brother-in-law, Lux Lesbridge, uh, who... Um, you know, I had an enormous amount of respect for and, and was a huge mentor for me for through that five or probably ten-year period, I reckon. And I sat down with him and I said, look, you know, I've, I've actually, I think I've got to change, I've got to do something better, you know, I, really, I feel like I'm a bit of an arsehole to work for and, and, um, and he said, that's fantastic. And he, so he, uh, he was very supportive of it, you know. Did he agree that you'd been an arsehole? Yep. He did? Yep. <coughs> uh, and, it, and you know what, um, a big part of his maturity. It's, mm. it's this whole pride and ego and, and this tough thing where you got to, you know, um, you have, and, and that was the blokes I worked for, right? They were the toughest men in the camp. So you had to be that and it's bloody ridiculous. Uh, and once we got over that and I just said, look, you know, I just um, want people to enjoy getting out of bed and going to work every day. So, um, so Lux, was, you know, he was very supportive and I was there for, uh, I did, that was, you know, I used to say that was the best year of my life was 2004 at Kalani where we just had so much fun. Um, we did things differently. Uh, it was my, you know, a real exposure, probably my first real exposure to doing things quite differently and um, and that being uh, a good thing. Um, so it was owned by a bloke called John Quintana and who was an American, um, he, he won the world title, bull riding title in, 19, in, the, in the 70s. And um, so John brought a lot of um, American culture to that business and to the point where we um, branded all the cars with a rope. And a lot of people used to think that was quite cruel. And I said, and, but when we explained it to them, that it was actually all about horsemanship and um, cattlemanship and that it was actually uh, quite calm and low stress it wasn't yeah yarring it was you know we did everything most things at a walk um and and as soon as that calf was branded it was let back up onto its mother um and, and it was a it, it was a real art and john john taught us that the art of it all the you know the um it's like being taught to be polite i suppose all the manners of uh, of uh, branding basically um and it gave a whole, all our crew a whole nother skill set uh, and I still ride with a rope on a saddle when I'm if I'm on a horse when I'm on a horse, uh, and it's just a, another tool that you can use to to do a job if you need to. But we branded ten thousand calves that year with a rope, and um, we use our rope as in you were. So we'd head we would um, head and heel a calf. So so the first person you know you're riding into a mob and you know you'd find a calf and rope it rope its head and it would come around behind you and this is all at a walk, and the next bloke would ride in there and catch its heels. And then the bloke on the head would release the tension, uh, and the bloke on the heels would just turn around and ride out the gate to where there's guys on the ground there. They would just hold that calf down, brand it, dehorn it, earmark it, uh, vaccinate it, take both the ropes off. It would get up and run over to its mum. In what, over a f- couple of minute period? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so be, you almost be over for it and knew it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so no, no drafting, no, no upper race, no crush, yep. bang, bang. Yeah, cool. So, uh, and like I say, it was about horsemanship. Blokes had to understand how to handle their horse and and do that without thinking about it because they had to be thinking about what that calf was doing and where they were riding and what mm. you know and how they're handling their rope. Um, so it was very slow, calm, steady, 
uh, it was good for people, good for horses, good for cattle. And and John used to say, um, "God made a horse, and God made a cow, and God made a cowboy." And um, so it was a, it was really it was great fun. That whole year was just mm. good. We worked bloody hard, but it was really good fun. Mm. And every day it seemed like every day John would come to us and say, "Right, we're going to do this this way." And we couldn't argue. We just said, "Okay, right," and we just had to find a way to do it. And um, and uh, and I've still got that motto today. Anytime someone comes to me, and you know, if Al says to you, "I want I want you guys to do this now," it's like, okay. Let's get on with it. Let's figure out a way to do it. You, mm. you know, we didn't have time to to resist or argue the point or say that was a silly idea or or you know, said, right, let's get on with it. Um, so it was, a, it was just, you know, I think back now and the um, how how much that developed me as a person, that ability to think differently, to accept change, um, to that positive culture that we we created there. It was all founded on bloody hard work. Um, talking about women in ag, we had, I, th- I remember that year we had four girls in the weaner camp branding wieners and we didn't brand them with a rut, but um, so these wiener craters were bloody heavy uh, and they would brand, you know, oh, I can't remember, we used to do five or 600 wieners in a day, I think it was, and... Um, my grandfather was there and he had four daughters. He came up there for a holiday and he had four daughters and they the only place they weren't allowed when they were children was in the yard. That was mm. a place for the blokes. And he actually went and found Lux and he and he gave Lux a good tune-up and said, what are these girls, buddy, doing over there lifting that cradle? And <laughs> Lux just said, they're fine. They are perfectly capable. Mm. You know, and these, my sister was one of them, Blenda, and then um, Rach was there and I think Trish was in that camp for a little while. And, um, you know, it was just... Um, that was how we did things. So uh, it was a really formative year. And for the, probably the next 10 years, I used to look back and go, that was the bloody best year of my life. Um, and, and I, you know, like I said, Lux and, and my sister are now married. They've got two kids and um, and they're still on a place in the uh, Pilbara in Western Australia and still living that lifestyle. Um, but, yeah, that was that was where, where I was. Um, Trish came back. Uh, second oh, I took it. No, she didn't actually. No, she that was so that was a real thing, right? She, mm. um, but she stayed up there. She worked, went and worked at another place for a couple of years, and then got a job with the DPI, and spent ten years with the with the DPI up there. Um, so yeah, uh, and why did I leave up there? I got to. Um, I was going to go flying. Not an uncommon story for young blokes. I've been up there for a few years. You're going to get your license and get on a chopper. Chopper. Uh, yeah. So, um, and I still love flying. It's one of the, every time I get in an aeroplane, I just, it's the best feeling in the world and, and it's still on my list of goals. It's in my, it's been in my 10-year goals for about 10 years You've been now. moving that one through yeah. your pages in your diary. Yeah, talking about prioritising. Uh, anyway, um, so I left up there. I actually went and worked on a road crew for 12 months. Oh, no, no, I'll ask you that question about goals later. Sorry, yeah, 10 months. Um, to try and make some money, uh, that was also good fun. We started in Tully in North Queensland and finished in Tasmania 12 months later, so we travelled. We were three weeks on, one week off, um, different town, different pub every night, didn't save any money, had a great time, uh, worked with a bunch of grumpy old blokes, um, but uh, saw a bit a bit more of Australia. And, and then... Um, How long was that? Oh, 12 months. Yeah. And then got a job in a feedlot. Uh, I was going out with a girl from St George and, and you know, as was the way with any of those um, construction, civil, mining type jobs. It's always a girl that pulls you out of there when you're 23. And uh, so, was it a feedlot in southern Queensland? And that was a different experience. Um, again, I was only there for about a year, but it was a uh, it was a really interesting year. I um, learnt that whole feedlot sector and how that works and mm. the intricacies of that, the ins and outs of it. Um, I was a 
last top supervisor there of, of a feedlot. Um, it was a whole different world to, to the Northern Territory, but it was another part of that supply chain. Uh, and then I went to Canada, having had that time up north with John and um, that American culture, and we had guys from the States who to come out and work out up there with us. And then the bloke that I was working for in the feedlot, Will Lane, um, he'd spent a lot of time in the States, and I was like, mate, I've got to go, I've got to go and see, see what this is all about. So... Um, you can't actually work legally in the States. I said to Will, what do I got to do? And he said, um, just get a passport and a plane ticket and head over there. You'll be right. You'll, you'll, jump, you'll get on a ranch and shoot some horses or break some cubs in or something, you know. In the US? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but you, As opposed to Canada? But you, yes, and but you can't. You can't just – my mother, bless her soul, she, she said um, – she did a bit of research for me. <laughs> I was ready to just buy the plane ticket and go to the post office and get the passport and go and – she said, well, you can't actually do that legally in America. Uh, what about Canada? You can get a visa for there. You can get a working holiday visa for there, and you know, maybe that's a better idea. So thankfully she did that, and away I went. And um, same thing, I was going over there for a year just to have a bit of fun, have a year off. I was at a point where I'd been in leadership positions there, I suppose, or, or been pushed into leadership roles for the few years before and realised I was like 24 or something, um, 25, and... I just thought I need I need to be a kid. Mm. I didn't have you know all my mates had just done four years at uni where they'd had a bloody ball and 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 I thought I just want to go and have some fun and be a kid for a while and not have any responsibility. Um, so I went over there and and uh, probably did that in a sense. I ended up on a ranch, which was I wasn't intending to be, but I was a um, guide on a guest ranch. So we used to take eight guests at a time back into the Rocky Mountains for. Um, two to four days at a time, uh, and it was a bloody great fun. I met people camping. from all over the world. Yeah, yeah. We, were, yeah. we camped in these cabins, um, packed everything in on the back of a horse, um, absolutely spectacular scenery, mm. uh, and and the people was what I enjoyed. We'd sit around the fire at night and you'd hear these stories from people from all over the world, and um, I didn't realise that the world is so bloody small. You know, you get on a plane tomorrow and you'd be in the other side of the world and... Uh, different culture, different people, um, and the same thing. I enjoyed that so much that I stayed over there for three years. Uh, ended up working on a broadacre um, seed growing business in eastern Alberta, and um, and I, one of the things, the challenges I found when I was over there was finding a job on a real farm. Like I was on this guest ranch, and it was a ranch, but it, you know. The, the kind of ranches that the blokes used to, that used to come from the States to work over here that they worked on, that was what I wanted to try and get mm. to. Uh, and I just couldn't find it. I couldn't find the, the land over there, basically, to find the job. Um, so when I did, I was like, you know, and all, I had plenty of mates. This is the year, the advent of Facebook about then. We're talking 2008, 9, 10, I was over there. Um, so they all messaged me, how do you get a job? Where do I go? How do I get a passport? How do I get a visa? Blah, blah, blah. And, um, so I built this. I started this little business where we would mentor people through the process of getting a passport, getting a um, visa, getting a plane ticket, um, and getting a job. Uh, and found a, another bloke over there, um, and he had spent a few years in Australia and from a ranch over there, big operation. Then I've been employing Aussies for quite a few years because they really enjoy, uh, appreciated the work ethic of young Aussies. Um, so he was about to start doing the same thing, and I said, "Well, you find the you find the jobs, and I'll find the people." So we had this great little partnership where I, that's, I did exactly that, and I was working on the farm and and finding people at two o'clock in the morning, um, doing interviews, you know, from a bunkhouse, and 
um, to the point where that got pretty busy and so busy that I, I couldn't do both. Um, and I was about ready to come home, so I came home and, and still did that and fumbled around a bit with other jobs for a couple of years there. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was a, it was a recruitment business that we started and it, and it was really good fun. <laughs> Again, it, it, uh, I used to say it, used to, it made a lot of dreams come true for a lot of young people and um, people who wouldn't ordinarily have got over there had we not mentored them through that. Um, and girls, the amount of girls that applied. Mm. And because they had the initiative, right, they had the, the you'd say you need, a, you need to go get a passport, you need to get a, a visa, this is where you do that, this is how you do it, you need to get a plane ticket, this is where you need to fly into. They get all organised. You tell young blokes that and they go, oh, Jesus. It's too that. hard. Yeah, it's too hard. What was it called? What was the name of your, your, your business? I called it Positive Perfection. Ah, right. Uh, which everyone's like, what the hell's that? Which was a kind of a good thing, right? Because mm-hmm. it was just, you know, Stuart Austin recruitment. You probably no one would remember it, but uh, <laughs> called it something different. So people used to wonder what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, was, I got involved in a lot of young farming groups too at that point, uh, which I really enjoyed that uh, that um, opportunity to to contribute to the industry and help other people um, through that platform. Um, so and I, when I left there, I was the chair. There was two young farming groups in Alberta, and I was the chair of both of them. And uh, that raised a few eyebrows. Of what was this young bloody young Aussie doing, being the chair of our <laughs> of two of them, <laughs> cross pollinating these two farmer groups? Yeah. <laughs> He's a mole sent from Australia, buddy. Take away yeah. good stuff. Yeah, classic. So you got back home? Uh, yeah, um, came back, and I oh, had one. Pretty ordinary job there for a little while, uh, and then went. I was kind of drawn to go back up north. That was where I felt comfortable, I suppose, and uh, ended up working for a rural training company in North Queensland. Um, and then we were going to expand on the um, recruitment business into yeah. a backpacker training business. So the amount of backpackers that come to Australia, um, getting them uh, some upskilling them a bit, um, giving them some training. Um, in in what? Just station skills, basically. Yeah. Very basic training for a week or 10 days and sifting through the ones that could um, had some evidence of initiative in common sense. Yeah, basically. Right. Saying the ones that had a bit of get up and go <laughs> and then helping them find a job. So you basically spun that on its head. You, you were back in Australia yeah. doing the reverse, getting yeah. it over here. Uh, anyway, it turns out we did all the market research and it turns out they do come here for the longest and they do come here with the most money, but they make it last and they don't want to spend it. Uh, so um, it was a very hard lesson in business. It cost me a lot of money. Uh, didn't it, it basically sent me broke, but I just worked my way out of it. it wasn't, so, so they so basically people weren't willing to pay you to help them Correct. work that out. They all wanted the job, but they didn't want the training okay. to get the job. That's interesting. Um, so Is that a lesson in do the do the research before you start the Correct. business. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah right. Yep. Yeah. Or do the right research. I think you know with the research we'd done. Um, Gave us the answers we thought we were looking for, but it wasn't wasn't quite. Mm. Uh, so um, again, my mother, uh, being the amazing guidance that she has been for my whole life, um, I think from the day that I well every year that I was up north, she used to because um, I tried to defer from UNE for a second year and they wouldn't let me, and I said, okay, well you know give my spot to someone else, and then so then from every year after that, about September every year, she'd send me the um, marker the, the marker oh, right. forms, yeah. Uh, which she did again in 2011 when I when that business had, I had to kind of accept that that wasn't going to work and I 
bloody churned up through all my money and uh, and I was actually in a, in a fairly ordinary place um, mentally. Uh, and she said, maybe it's a, you know, maybe it's a good time to go to Marcus. And I finally succumbed and said, yes, I think you might be right, Mum. And I and the timing was the timing was perfect. It age was age what? Twenty. I was twenty eight when I went down there. Yeah. Uh, Two thousand twelve. Um, one of the most uh, valuable investments I've ever made in myself. Um, all right, so I realised I needed to learn about budgets, P and Ls, um, balance sheets, uh, trading accounts, cash flows, um, all that side of it that I had just taken for granted that it'll be right. Um, so I went. I, that was what I needed was this business skills and went down there and that's exactly what I learned. Um, you know, I was only down there for a year, uh, but it gave me that business foundation and that's what we're, our industry, you know, so many people in the industry are lacking um, is those business skills uh, or that business knowledge, I suppose. Um, so, yeah, went down there and, and uh, a great year. Oh, obviously, it's a good fun um, and Trish and I got back together that year. So nine years later, she—I I say that she came to her senses. Nine years later, <laughs> Did I, she, how, how, was she down there? No, I, I, so we had to do a three-month placement, and obviously, um, you know, I still like that northern uh, environment up there. And she put me in touch with her. We'd still great. Trish and I had been great mates right through that whole time, and kept in touch. And um, her, my sister and her—you know—they were both still up north, so they were still good mates. And um. Anyway, I said, look, I've, you know, we've got to do this placement. Is there anyone you suggest? And she put me onto a guy called Steve Petty who was had a business in Kananara um, as a consultant working with um, pastoral landholders up there. Um, so I got onto Steve and I did three months with him and so I was in Kananara and Trish was in Catherine and I many a weekend bloody jumped in this Prada and raced across from Kananara to Catherine. How many hours is that? Trish, about, well, it should be five, but... With an open speed limit, you can do it much quicker. I can. I used to see how quick I could do it. Uh, anyway, um, so yes, yeah, so Trish and I got back together, and then at the end of that year, so I finished college, uh, did that, did the twelve months down there, um, and I got the piece of paper, but I got the knowledge that I needed. That and that was, you know, it was a, it's a really well put together twelve months. Um. So uh, went back up north and um, actually had a landed a, a job with the um, university up there, uh, overseeing initially overseeing the stud um, at the rural college outside Catherine, oh, yeah. uh, and then they also had a had the lease on Mataranka Station that they'd had for a long time, um, designed to be training students uh, and or, uh, as a commercial cattle operation. Um, so I was pretty excited. So then, not long after I'd started as the overseer, then got the manager's job at Mataranka. Um, went down there, you know, full of enthusiasm to um, implement some changes down there and uh, and make that. My goal was to make it, um, you know, they had a really had this advisory committee that was made up of pastoralists and and the DPI and the university, and it was about. Um, you know, what can we do with that place to, to really use it to its full potential, I suppose. So because we had a, a good relationship with the DPI, Trish at the DPI and us, and they were they did some brilliant research up there, those guys. That team in Catherine was fantastic, um, still is. And um, 
so I wanted to take that, that re- those research outcomes and implement them at a, a commercial scale for industry to demonstrate to industry that this you know, this research was really valuable and had legs and worth implementing on on your commercial operation. Um, very very challenging. Uh, again, pushed me to um, places mentally that I don't like to go back to. Um, where you know I'm a fairly progressive, proactive, um, impatient uh, person. Want to get on with it, you know? And that university structure and hierarchy is is quite the opposite. Where very conservative, low risk. Um, you know, didn't want to do too much different. So, so, you, so there was research that had been done, and you wanted to implement it. So it was was it was a natural sort of thing to go on. Okay, let's go and put this on a bigger scale. And was it so red tape, um, ethics committees, yep, yep, all that sort of stuff? Yep, that was a big part of it. You know, there had been it. There was a, an animal welfare disaster there, and. Um, a few years before, I, can't, I don't know exactly what year it was, about 10 or 11 or something. And um, so that was their, their biggest fear, don't ever let any, don't let any die. Nothing can die. And, you know, animals do die from time to time, mm. one or two here or there, mm. you know. And But if they did, there was a full report as to what did that animal die from. And, mm. uh, and so it was just a, the management, <coughs> the, the um, their focus was all on... on don't let anything bad happen. Rather than how much, how many good things can good we do? Things. Yeah, right. Um, cool. And so that was focusing was, on what they didn't want. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, thankfully there was a new uh, vice chancellor took over the university. He um, he did a review of all the university assets, and he said we don't need a cattle station at Mataranka that hasn't seen a student for you know, seen five students a year for the last four or five years. You know. Um, this is not part of our core business, and um, so they terminated the lease and made me redundant, and it was probably the best way it could have ended. Um, so I just I was left in a good, uh, you know, given the golden handshake and the opportunity to go and do whatever I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was where that got to. What happened then? Uh, <laughs> you went, you went right. Uh, I, can I can do anything now. Pretty well. Yep. Um, Obviously, you know, that management job um, or those roles, they give you a lot of security and so and I mm. kind of needed that. Um, Trish and I got married uh, September 2013, so it was the second year. And um, What date? 29th. And I think it was... Uh, what time? Everything, <laughs> <laughs> everything happened in that very short period there, right, in that late, September, late 2013... Uh, and I think it must have only been, it was after then, like a month later, made redundant. Um, yeah, right. So we just got married. I, I'd had some pretty serious mental health issues by that point uh, and and then got made redundant. And so I needed a job and that security for all those reasons. Um, you know, I had an obligation to um, contribute to our relationship financially, um, you know, some security for Trish as to where we are going to be and what we are doing. Uh, all those sort of things, um, and anyway, uh, that didn't you know the management job didn't come to pass. But there was there's a lot of contract that goes on up there, right? So um, we had an ABN, we had our own cattle by that point. 
um, and we had an ABN. Um, so I just started contracting, you know, I drove a truck for a while and then went and broke some winners in. Um, and uh, Harry was born. Um, I'm getting my dates mixed up a bit here. This is, yeah, so, so 20, sorry. We were married September 2013 and 2014 was when things wrapped up 12 months later. Right. Did get my dates mixed up. Mm. So Harry, and then, then Harry was due in, um, so Trish was pregnant when I was made redundant. That's what that was. What mm. it was. So that was, that was why you, know, you have that stress. You know, obligation to, to for some security and you know yeah. a job and, and an income. And Harry was born in February. So we um, uh, again. So I just started doing whatever whatever I could find. A couple of weeks driving a truck here or there, doing whatever. Uh, and so when Harry was born, Trish took twelve months um, leave from the DPI. Um, so she came with me and Harry, and we just did. We ended up doing nearly two years of just contracting, and we were we went breaking wheels in for a while. Um, I did some welding for a while, drove a truck for a while. I was running a spraying contracting crew for a while. Um, just bloody did whatever, and mm-hmm. uh, and we, we kind of tried to stay fairly central to Catherine. And we had we just lived in a donger, like a twenty foot donger, um, paid bugger all rent, saved a lot of money. Um, we, you know, we didn't have many overheads at that point. Uh, and then when Trish went back to work, obviously, so we were kind of bound to Catherine a bit. And um, I had just uh, left one contracting job and, um, again, getting into a pretty ordinary place mentally. Uh, and a bloke rang me from, from – so I was spraying in this – Sandalwood plantation, running a contracting crew, spraying the sandalwood plantation, and I left that. Um, and a, a, the bloke from the quarry rang me, or no, the bloke, sorry, the yeah, the bloke from the plantation rang and rang one day, and I was just at home kicking around doing nothing, and um, he said, "We've got it. There's a fire there. Can you drive a grader?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "Can you just come and jump in this grader for us?" And and I said, "Yeah, I'll probably do that." So I went down, went to the quarry, picked up the grader, went and put these fire breaks around this plantation and, you know, everything was right. Went home that day and the bloke from the quarry rang me the next morning and he said, come and have a yarn to us. And he said, what are you up to? And I said, oh, not much, just buddy, parking around. And he said, have you got a truck licence? I said, yeah. And he said, well, you know, do you want to get in a truck? And I said, yeah, I've got nothing else to do. Uh, so that was with Jeff, it was Jeff Rowland and, um, and his son Wombat, uh, affectionately known as Wombat. Chris Rowlands. Anyway, um, so I drove a truck for a few months and, and I said to them, I said, look, I'm, I am looking for a full-time job, so I won't be here forever. Um, but it was a low-stress job and I just got, used to get in the truck, you know, at 4 o'clock in the morning, drive to bloody Kalkaringi or somewhere and unload and gravel and then drive all the back, get home at bloody 7 or 8 or 9 o'clock at night, go home and do it again the next day. Again, um, on an hourly rate and a kilometre rate, I think, making plenty of money, uh, no stress, um, but I had an income. Uh, you know, I was away a few nights a week, but not every night of the week. Um, and uh, and those guys were just really good to me. And mm. and at the time, well, that's what I needed was just some <coughs> some security, some cash flow. Um, I could do, you know, operate most whatever they needed me to do there: drive the grader or um, roller or buddy trucks or whatever. Uh, and so through that period then, um, we are still looking for jobs and saw this job advertised um, down here in, at, at Wilmot. And I obviously didn't say where it was or what it was, but it was the wording of the ad, you know, kind of um, 
appealed to me. Uh, well, the, you saw it in what in the, in the last test talk and rising <coughs> management it was online. It was on Jeff Lucas had it advertised, mm. um, and by that point we just started thinking about leaving up north. So, um, you know, looking outside the territory at opportunities, and uh, so I rang Jeff and I said, you know, that's the sort of job we'd be interested in. I'd know, I'd known Jeff previously, and I said that's the sort of job we'd be interested in if you thought our skills suited and. Um, Anyway, far about five interviews later, I think, uh, and a trip down to Wilmot um, over a two or three month period, um, we got the job. And the job was for as a, as a manager, manager at Wilmot. Yeah, right. Uh, and I was actually driving trucks with um, a bloke up there from Armadale, and uh, I said, "Oh, it's an Ebor," yeah. and, and he, I said, "I've never heard of Ebor. I don't know where that is." He said, "Oh, mate, that is God's country. Like, if, you know, if you get that." He said, "Don't hang around here." Um, and he wasn't he wasn't wrong. Mm. So um, September 2016, we came down here, uh, and I, you know, we talked about being windy yesterday, and and Anne Coote said some very kind words there yesterday um, when she introduced me to speak. Uh, and I was thinking about it last night. It was a, you know, I said yesterday that it was the last five years have probably been the most meaningful years of my life, mm. um, and I think I'm, I really meant that. I've, Felt like I've contributed more and achieved more in the last five years than, um, or, or something more meaningful than I have anywhere previously. Well, you've got your roots down, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, good way. You know, I've been around the ridges a bit. Uh, uh, it's certainly there'd be people to look at my resume and think, "Geez, his buddy been everywhere." <laughs> but the the um, the inverse to that is that I've learned something everywhere I've been, mm. and I've seen so many different things and been exposed to so many different skills and, um, yeah, I feel like I've kind of got a fairly well-rounded skill set now. Um, Let's talk about that, workplace principles, <clears throat> you know, and you, you said that, you know, having read um, John McGrath's book, you went back up north, there was a, you know, very clear change in your attitude and that was reflected in, you know, people's, I guess attitude back to you, um, and that's clearly been a uh, something that you know has been one of your principles or a number of principles you take to wherever you go. What, 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 what just sort of can you highlight what some of the the the, the pillars of your workplace look like? You know, what some of the principles or the the expectations, the attitudes. Yeah, the um, the two goals that roll around every year, and my goals are to help other people and make people laugh. Looking for more information to assist your regenerative journey? Come join Charlie and his guests around The Kitchen Table, an online community of supporters with exclusive access to the Regenerative Journey interview transcripts, live online Q&A sessions, a chance to engage with other like-minded people and more. Go to www.charliearnett.com.au forward slash The Kitchen Table and we look forward to sharing a yarn with you. Now let's get back to this week's episode. You got a heap of like bad dad jokes and stuff. Not really. The <laughs> <laughs> odd one liner. I just made you laugh. There you go. That's so it. That's it. it. That's Job it. done for the day. <laughs> okay. Thank, thanks, Jim. That was enough. You're welcome. Uh, 
So, so that helping others, and, and the other thing about it, um, you know, and this came from Lux, was that uh, Lux is a, a pretty full-on person um, for anyone that works for him, but he does it because he really gives a shit. Mm. He really cares about people. He, you know, any young kid that turns up there to work, he's, he um, takes it upon himself to help them become a better person. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's something I've taken everywhere with me is that is I genuinely care about all the people who work for me. Um, I, you know, I'm interested in what what their interests outside work are, what they want to achieve in their career, where they'd like to get to. Um, you know, what what their future looks like, and how can I help them get there? Um, and I don't have I don't um, take issue with people leaving. I feel like as long as I've contributed something positive to them in the time that they work for me, um, then then that's that's helped them get to the to the to the next stage in their life. So um, that's a that's a big thing, and you know, the people in our business is absolutely everything, and and um, it's not about what we do; it's how it's how we do it and how we think about what we do. You talk about it so brilliantly around the, about the paddock between your ears, and you're absolutely correct. It, you know. Um, the way the landscape in Australia is managed uh, is not the cattle's job or, or the grass's job. It's the, it's our job. It's people that do that, and and good, bad, or otherwise, um, it's a result of actions and decisions that people have made um, in terms of the management of the landscape. So um, uh, that's the main thing, mate, is, is how important they are and, and the well-being of our people, how they're feeling, how they're going. Um, you know, I try to be as supportive as I can be and, and create a um, culture where people are comfortable to come and talk to me about whatever they need to. Uh, and, you know, <clears throat> um, if there's things that they're not happy about, issues or whatever in the workplace, that, that I'm fairly open to, to and receptive to hearing them. Um What's your, com- your communication sort of, um, I guess, not so much style, but you know, do you meet with – how many how many staff are out there? Uh, there's only a small crew. We've got um, a manager on each farm, yeah. um, and Lisa, who is our admin girl, who does mm-hmm. all the office work, uh, and then a casual station in on each farm. Yeah. Um, so it's only a small crew. Um, they all give me shit all the time because I've got a little earpiece thing that, in my ear, that, like a little Bluetooth thing. It's so handy. Mm. Uh, and I'm on the phone all the time. So I, if you haven't noticed, I talk a lot. Mm. Um, so it's, very <laughs> it's good. It's handy <laughs> when you're doing interviews. <laughs> uh, so I just – it's a, just a very open communication. You know, mm. If I think of something, I'll give them a ring and they don't always answer the phone, but they ring back. And you know, So we're talking about things all the time and, and it's always about – the probably the trouble is I have so much time to think when I'm driving, so I'm constantly thinking of new ideas and new things we could do and – um, it's not up. It's up to them to implement it. So I'll float the idea. And what mm. do you think about this? And then I'll, you know, it's up to them to to implement it. So and choose to whether they'd like to or not. Um, do you have um, a weekly, daily, monthly check-ins with them? Uh, we do have a monthly management meeting. Yes. Um, per, is that per per property or yeah. as a as a group? Yep. Yeah. So we'll. So the structure of the business is there's a family office in Sydney. Um, and there's a few guys work down there, so once a month a couple of them will fly up um, and normally for two days, so we'll try and visit, you know, one or all of um, the three farms, um, do a bit of a tour, stop in, uh, catch up with those guys on farm and then, then we'll all get together, you know, 
um, at the end of those two days and have a couple of hour management meeting where we'll go through a manager's report that they've circulated um, prior uh, and a finance report um, and a market report. And so the, probably the critical thing there is that finance report that we're answerable to that every month. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a good monthly check-in. It's a good check-in for those guys too, that once a month they kind of stop and sit down and write what they've been up to and, you know, take stock of where they're at um, in terms of their stocking rate to carrying capacity financially, um, cattle numbers-wise, rainfall-wise, where I'm at and how am I going. And they've got to put in there what, they plan, you know, what their activities mm. are for the next month. And so where are we going the next month and six months and 12 months? Yeah, nice. Um, I noticed you've got your, one of your, your, um, your colourful shirts on today, being Friday. Yep. Tell us about that. Um, so I'm pretty passionate about mental health and, and helping other people. And um, these shirts were um, made by Trademark, the boys in Brisbane. What's going on here? Hang on. Oh, power mode. It's going on there. I have to change that puppy later. Uh, made by the boys in Brisbane, um, Dan and Ed, who were. So, what's the name of the, the shirt? Trade mutt. Trade mutt. Trade mutt. Yep. Yeah, cool. Set of doggies on here somewhere. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's, the, that's the boys. Oh, yeah. Um, anyway, they the, the short story is they were chippies in, in Brisbane uh, and one of their mates committed suicide and really affected them and they wanted to do something that. Um, was meaningful and opened the conversation uh, much or normalised the conversation in that in the um, trades industry, basically. So the target audience was tradies, these loud shirts. People would say, Jesus, mate, what's the bloody go with your shirt? And, uh, and then you say, well, actually, it's just about, you know, normalising the conversation around mental health. Mm. And on the back of the shirt, it says this is a conversation starter. Um, and so anyway, we... Um, uh, I have shared my mental health story in a fair bit of detail with a, on a migrating webinar last year that people can look up if they're interested to hear that. Um, and so I just think it's a fantastic initiative and it's rippled through the bush. There's, you know, I saw the CPC guys the other day. They had they gave their um, whole crew all a trademark shirt. Um, there's mine sites now. The, the boys have made ones that are high-vis. Um, if this isn't visible enough, uh, that's faded a little bit too. Yeah, exactly. well, this is fairly new. This is a, it's oh. a yeah, it's just that's the style. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, anyway, they're, they're they're a great shirt. So we, I just, um, I bought all our crew one, and I said, um, you know, why don't we make Friday uh, Friday shirts? Mm-hmm. Um, and for the same reason, about new blacks just recognising that you know if you're not feeling well, um, don't hesitate to come and have a yarn to me and. Um, you know, one or two of our guys are a bit more conservative, and I don't think it's ever come out of the cupboard again. But uh, so, they, so there's no like, hey mate, you go go home and put your Friday shirt no, on. But no. <laughs> would, would completely defeat the purpose of, of the concept of the Friday shirt and normalising the conversation. You give them, you give them the opportunity. That's yeah, yeah. fair. Uh, and actually, uh, interestingly, on it, that raises a, a thought I just had a minute ago when talking about principles in the business. Mm. Um, uh, one of the other guys who was quite influential um, for a short period of time when I was up north was a guy called Charlie Corns who um, tragically passed away at Newcastle Waters when I was there and um, that that did bloody have an impact on me, I can tell you. Um, and anyway, but Charlie, one of the things that someone said upon reflection of Charlie's life was um, he never told anyone to do anything. He always said, would you mind? And and I'd never forgotten that. Um, nice. and, and so I now I've always had that in my mind too now that I, I very rarely tell any of our guys to do something 
I always ask them if they would mind doing something or suggest that they might like to consider doing this. And then it becomes their idea. Then it's up to them. And particularly that these guys are managers of those farms. So I want them to take ownership of the farm. I don't want them thinking, right, I've I've got to wait till Steve tells me what I've got to do on this farm and how to manage it before I go and manage it. I want them to be thinking, this is, I'm responsible for this farm. I'm going to treat this farm like I own it. Um, And I'm basically just offering some um, thoughts, guidance, advice, suggestions for them to consider implementing. And um, there are times that I suggest things a bit more, with a bit more, uh, in a bit more forthright manner. Externally. But, you know, and all that does hopefully is just make them realise that this is probably something pretty important and this would probably have a bigger effect than that thing you suggested last week because it might be nice to do. That's an interesting one, you know, because it's it's just sort of a a tactic I employ um, and it's certainly something I learned from my father. He was always suggesting things. Um, And when, you know, the younger you are, the more prone you are to probably ignoring it, especially coming from your father. But as a as an employer, you know, I, I like that tactic. How how when you're when you're suggesting something quite sternly, uh, because from experience you know that's what works best. You know whether that's how you move a mob of cattle through a paddock or whatever it happens to be. You know a, a way to do something, and that doesn't happen. Like you're very stern, you're stern and you're nice and you're diplomatic. And it's pretty clear to most people that that's probably how the boss ones are done, and that yeah. doesn't happen. What, what do you do? Um, I ask why. Uh, um, you know, so, so the job gets done differently. Let's just yeah, say, or, or it doesn't doesn't, doesn't get done at all. Doesn't get implemented. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's not so much about. Yeah, I suppose that there's times there's jobs or things things to implement in the into that operation. Um, ask why and and. Which comes back to me having not given them an opportunity to perhaps discuss that thing. You know, if it, if the conversation has been fairly one sided, where I've suggested they do something, and but haven't given them an opportunity to suggest to, to pose their thoughts, or they've gone away and thought about it and thought, well, actually, I don't think it's a good idea. But they haven't come back to me and told me why they didn't think it was a good idea. Mm. So then, when I you know ask why, I open that conversation, give them an opportunity to say, well, this is why. And I go, okay, that's fair enough. Um, you know. And then we have a conversation. Well, this is why I thought it would be a good idea. Um, uh, and then you know we have a bit more of a conversation about it, I suppose. Mm. But it's interesting. We did some um, personality uh, type the Myers Briggs with our with um, our three managers last year, and uh, and out of that comes you know the um, what people are like if they're this particular personality type, yeah, yeah. or, or what they need. Uh, and some people actually need very clear, very detailed instructions. Mm. This is how I want you to do it, and this is what I want you to so do. So not not so much a suggestion, correct. but more of a, a, um, a um, quite a direct, yeah, detailed instruction. Yep. Yeah. Um, so that was an important thing for me to recognise was that actually some of these guys do want to be told what to do, and they do want some clear directions and some clear instructions I'm and proud details. Of that. Yeah. Um, mm. And so you know, again, it comes back to that effective communication. If I haven't done that, then it's probably more my fault than. Than um, theirs, um, and the, and the other part is, uh, you know, one of our guys in particular, um, he likes the opportunity to think about things, have some time to think about things, and um, he has been through enormous change and um, in himself and the business and so forth, uh, and 
um, he often will come back to me a week or two weeks later and he's built on that idea and made it even better. And I say, yep, absolutely. And that's that. on the back of suggestion or instruction? Suggestion. Yeah, again. What do you think about this? Yeah, and so he go goes and thinks. Yep. And, he, and, and he, doesn't, he might not say much at the time, but then he'll come back a couple of weeks later and mm. some things he turns into absolute genius. And it's just about giving it's, – it's just a different personality type where he just needs a bit of time to go home and think about it. Get an exhaust, drive around the farm, do whatever. And then he'll come back to me and say, oh, I thought about that thing and, and I reckon we should do this as well. So therein lies a good point, I reckon, that about being prepared that, um, you know, if, if I guess it comes back to you, to you, if you're the one giving the instructional suggestions, knowing what needs to be done in the future, the earlier you can give them that heads up, the more time this particular fellow has to talk about it, yeah. as opposed to saying, hey, mate, this afternoon yeah. we've got a big job yeah. Yeah. and I reckon we should do it this way. He's That's got right. no time to think about it and he mightn't grasp that whole thing and then you mightn't get the best out of him because yeah. he hasn't had the time to that he needs to bubble for these wonderful things to bubble to the surface. Yeah, absolutely. So being and, preemptive. Yep. Yeah. And the other great thing I've learned last, there's two things there. One is um, uh, the it's got to become their idea. Mm. Um, and until something is is their idea, uh, they won't have they won't have full buy and a full ownership of it. Um, and and the other, it's probably not quite as relevant. But um, the other thing I've learned about people and, and helping other people is that um, you can't help those who don't want to be helped. Mm. And this is I'm not talking about our staff now or our crew, but just people in general. Um, there are people in life that I've. Uh, come across and um, interacted with and had you know relationships with who um, uh, I can see potential can see how much more they could achieve in their life um, but they don't want to and so and it's there's there's only a few there's this is not many people but there's been a few where I've just had to walk away and so I'm sorry mate but I can't help you anymore because it, it actually quite affects me that um, they don't want to be better they can be so much better and they might be an employee at that time. Yep, and then is that is that sort of then that leads to um, re, yeah they, they've got to go. Uh, yeah, they they find their own way out. Basically, yeah. Um, you give them a good reason to. That's got to be pretty bloody cold now. That's all right. Still still good. <laughs> um, I was just thinking, mate. I need to go and drain the spuds. <laughs> we haven't talked about much about regeneration yet, but uh, uh, well, this is. I can. This is. Um, it's that. This is. I mean, again, this is. This is about regeneration. This is about your life. You know, there's there's yeah. a, there's a clear regeneration or generation of, in your life. You know, um, as as it as as it as it um, proceeds. Yeah. You know, and that's that's a wonderful thing. Um, I'm I'm just wondering whether I ask you a question. I go drain the spuds. I'll be about thirty seconds. <laughs> I've never done this before. <laughs> right, yeah, we're back. Sorry, sorry mate. Um, where were we? Workplace principles. Any other? Any other? Because um, I know that's important to you, and you've been, you know, very um, uh, successful. Probably not the right word, but very effective. In doing that, because I know I don't necessarily know your employees, but I know the sort of attitude. I know you reasonably well. See you enough online, and that to sort of understand your your sort of the vibe you create. Any other sort of tips? I mean, really, I'm keen to understand um, for my listeners' sake 
and me, you know, what other things can, can we learn from your um, your workplace, again, principles and attitude? Um, it's clearly, clearly effective, you know. Well, yeah, uh, thank you. Um, we, I do, it's a very positive culture that I try and create and a very progressive culture. Um, probably part of the reason that I'm in the position that we're in is because I have that approach and that attitude and I really want to get you done and... and um, and like I said, I'm impatient. So I'm in a hurry to, to do as much as I can in the, this short dash, I suppose. Uh, one thing that came to mind there was um, pride and ego are our two biggest limiting factors, I think. And, uh, and, and what comes in line with that is the tall poppy syndrome. Um, and as an industry, um, we've got to bloody get over ourselves. The... Uh, um, Yes, I think we should be proud of what we do. Um, yes, I should be. I, I think we should be uh, quite comfortable and open and happy to talk about what we do and why we do it. Um, but for God's sake, stop shooting each other down and and uh, you know holding people back. Um, and the other part of it is that it's uh, it's what gets in the way of pride and ego. What gets in the way of making better decisions uh, and having that capacity. You know, through the drought was a great example where people just um, having that capacity to step back and say, right, I, this isn't working. I'm, 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 I'm out of ideas. I need some new knowledge. Who can I go and ask? Uh, how can I find that information? What else can I do? What can I do differently um, that will lead to a better outcome so that I feel better about it? And, um, you know, it was almost became competitive through the drought to see who, who would spend the most amount of money on feed and, and supplement, you know, and uh, who had the biggest story to tell, and it's absolute bloody rubbish. Um, and, and that's just one example, but it's, there's so many times in the industry where, where pride and ego get in the way of um, people making better decisions and being better people. Um, uh, so that's probably, I don't know how that necessarily flows through a business, Um I suppose I do. Obviously, I talk a lot about what we do at Wilmot Cattle Company, and um, and I do that to help others. I don't do that to beat our own drum and, and tell everyone how bloody good we are. Or you know, it's not about stroking my own ego. It's about sharing what we do for the benefit of other people, such that they might go and you know do some of those things on their place and their landscape, um, which you know hopefully will lead to better ecological outcomes for their landscape, better people outcomes, and, and better community outcomes. Just getting back to. Um, well, you said there, um, Stu, about the. I guess to me, it's, it's about letting letting go. You know, let it go, and that's that's also reflective of you know one of the um, low stress stock handling principles is sometimes you know you just got to let that let it go. Like the the steers just got down round behind you, and you 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 know, I used to you know um, get a bit cranky about that and go and chase the bloody thing, and I'm going to show it bloody where it needs to go, as opposed to. It's gone, and you just go. You know what? Clearly needed to go there. Yeah. I'm just going to let it go. It's gone. And nine times out of ten, the thing, bloody thing will come back anyway. Yeah. You know, yeah. as an example. But it's yeah. a, it's a good sort of analogy for for that sort of um, the attitude. And just yeah. back to sort of being open. That to, to a point I made yesterday at the windy um, field day, um, which was let's give that a quick plug now. It was it was I'm going to get the the whole spiel wrong, but it was. Um, it was about building resilient communities through the rehydration of, of landscape down there in the Liverpool Plains and um, the Upper Mukai 
um, Landcare Group um, ran that program and um, uh, it was amazing, amazing day. Um, talking about the first session was talking about the the um, the project in itself, and we had a number of the landholders up there talking about the um, their contribution and what they did and their riparian zone sort of um, uh, improvements and fencing and so on, which is fantastic. And then we had um, before lunch and after lunch sessions um, in four farmers from each in each of those sessions from around the area, going as far out to sort of Bogabri and Narrabri, I think, and and um, and around about just talking about their implementation of regenerative practices um and that they on their on their farms and 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 the to your point you know they're so open so honest um so supportive of each other as well you know there wasn't a hint of competition it was all about i'm here just to share my story and you know some of the stories you know there's wasn't just about oh and then I then I bloody plant this and I move a cow there. It's sort of you know how it impacted their mental health, how it's changed their lives. You know some really wonderful stories there. It was a fantastic day. I, I drove from there back to here and I was just on a high. Like I was really pumping that. Um, absolute credit to Craig and Nikki and all the um, work they put into that project and that mm. day yesterday and. Um, they're fantastic people, you know, the same thing. They just want to help other people. And Anne Coote. And Anne Coote. Band, Bandy Coote. There, there, there was another bloke there I'm saying as well who did a pretty good job. Uh, so <laughs> Like some bloody <laughs> ring in. Um, but it was fantastic, you know, and, and really uh, I have been critical of, of broadacre cropping, uh, you know, management, I suppose, and we are talking about it last night that, the last couple of presentations I've seen on that have, haven't given me much um, uh, hope that, that those guys are doing much different. But the stories we heard yesterday were absolutely brilliant. And, you know, um, Andrew Watson, Scotty McCalman, Ian Carter, uh, they are doing things differently. And, mm. and really, um, like Scott McCalman's story just bloody blew me away. Like, that is fantastic. And he, you know, I, I'd spoken to Scott a few times in the past, but it was the first time I met him. Mm. Um, but at the end of the day, there, he was just like, he was bloody he was excited, down, wasn't he? He was so excited. And I think those guys, uh, I think they enjoyed, uh, I don't know, I didn't, I, you know, I'm not speaking for them, but I felt like they enjoyed the opportunity to share their story. Uh, amongst some people who were really receptive to it, going, oh, mate, that's bloody terrific. Where, um, I've, I've wondered whether amongst their peers, because they were doing things differently, they may not be, you know, they might not be so willing to share their story <coughs> for fear of, you know, the whole tall poppy syndrome. What the hell are you doing that for? That won't bloody work. And, and one of the things about this whole regenerative kind of um, community, I suppose, is being very open to doing things differently. Mm. And, Looking at things from a different perspective and questioning things, and um, and those guys have done that, and it, it was bloody credit to them. It was a real sense of not that they weren't there to bang their own, excuse me, bang their own drum. It was a real sense of excitement to share to help others absolutely. and just say this can be done. Yep. You know, absolutely. I've done it. If I can bloody do it, yep. you know, yep, absolutely. it can be done. And that was, um, and I think we were talking about last night too, Stu, that there wasn't there wasn't a sort of because sometimes. Um, you know, in gatherings, understandably, uh, big and small, there's often, you know, pushback. There are questions that um, can be pointed and, and, you know, they're sort of like, and, and that's a really a, a good thing. We want to be challenged in, in our thinking um, and that can be done by questions. But there, there wasn't sort of, there was there was a really openness of the audience to those ideas, wasn't yep. it? There wasn't there people sort of arms crossed, huffy, huffy and puffy. Yep. 
Yeah. They'd bother to come all the way from wherever they were to Windy um, to listen, and I think they got – I can't imagine anyone would have gone home last night going, oh, it was a waste of a day. Yeah, exactly right. And they, 75 bucks sort of was. Yeah, exactly right. They, um, where there's those polarising discussions are becoming less and less, and that's, that's a really exciting thing. Um, and every, every one of those days that I go to, and it's the same up at Wilmot when we have the mine grazing day, um, there's people there and it's the first, you know, regenerative sort of a field day that they've been to and they kind of are blown away going, this isn't crazy, this isn't witchcraft, this is, mm. you know, we're doing a few of these things already and, and um, you know, thank you so much for being so open and, and being willing to talk about what you guys do and, um, and it, you know, there's no competitiveness, there's no, it's just around, Looking at things differently and thinking, considering things differently. So, um, and it was the same yesterday. That you know, uh, sure, there's there's plenty of people there didn't ask questions, mm. um, but they didn't leave either. You know, they, no. they stayed the stayed the course there the whole day and and have gone home thinking about things differently. It was a solid day too. A lot of sitting, a lot of listening. Yeah. Yep. Um, I want to just jump to carbon, um, Stu. I know you've been involved and in, and in, in the in that for. Oh, well, some period of time and quite intensively in the last couple of months. I don't need to go into the detail, but what sort of – why have you and, and the business jumped into that um, arena and, you know, what are your thoughts on it and, and the future of this whole carbon um, – carbon in on, well, I guess it is an industry now, isn't it? There are businesses built around it. There are farmers, you know, putting it in the ground. There's a real – it's another um, – adds a whole other layer of colour um, and more than colour, you know, financial um, uh, benefit. So that's, I don't know where you want to start there. That's a big question, Charlie, and um, to try and summarise it, I suppose, as succinctly as I can. And, um, you know, we see it as a, a, a huge opportunity for landholders to... Um, Secure, I suppose, put some financial security, uh, underpin their business with some financial security. Um, that is uh, not um, short-term reliant on weather uh, conditions. Um, and, it, uh, and it's also um, an opportunity for agriculture to shine uh, as more than just an industry that supplies food um, to a growing population, uh, but a an industry that is reversing climate change um, and um, through better landscape management and sequestering carbon, um, we will restore the landscape of Australia. Um, so that's a very high-level view of things, but that's how we see it is that... Uh, and I've said it time and again, we don't consider ourselves carbon farmers. We're a beef production business um, and built around grazing management um, and, you know, our focus is on grass um, first and foremost and if we manage our grass then our animals will um, live a fantastic life, um, our production will be good. Uh, you know, there's never any animal welfare issues because we're managing our grass, not our animals. Um, and... And as a result of that, we have a financially profitable business from our beef production, you know, core business of beef production and grazing management that's based on grazing management. As a result of that, we build carbon in our soil, um, which is carbon that we have taken out of the atmosphere and stored in our soils. 
and the rest of the world is talking about greenhouse gases and carbon in the atmosphere and how we can get it out of the atmosphere. Um, and all we've done is demonstrated through um, very rigorous data that we've taken thousands of tonnes of that gas out of the atmosphere and put it in our soils and we intend to keep it there for a long time. Um, and so that's a, an incredibly positive story for the agriculture industry to tell. To to you know all of a sudden the you know the the um, people in Canberra and so forth are standing up going what do you mean you you know it's because our our numbers are demonstrating we're massively carbon positive where we've taken four or five times more carbon out of the atmosphere than we've emitted out the the front and back end of a cow um, and it's just uh, we haven't. No one's. It seems has been able to put together the the level of data that we have to, uh, up until this point. And now all of a sudden, um, you know, we uh, we did a deal that was worth a significant amount of money, um, a large enough amount of money for people to sit up and take notice. Uh, and all of a sudden, the wheels are turning. And um, like I said, we don't intend to, to for our business to be built around soil carbon. Um, our core business has and always will be production of really nutrient-dense grass-fed beef. Um, but uh, it, this is a co-benefit and, and something that's a, you know, I suppose commodity is not a not a word that I'd necessarily like to, attra- to attach to carbon credits, but they are effectively a, a tradable commodity that, um, that big business is looking to buy. And they've, they've been buying them for years. They've been buying them from savannah burning and human-induced revegetation and veg plantings and you know, planting trees and all these sort of things, and uh, all of which are based <coughs> um, around less emissions. Mm. Uh, and what we are focused on is actually, which which still means gas is getting you know in the atmosphere. What we're trying to do, what we're, or the story we're trying to um, get out there is that actually we're taking a lot of that gas out of the atmosphere um, and putting it in our soils, as opposed to just emitting less of it. Um, <coughs> Is so, it, is it, sorry, go on. No, that, that's probably that's probably it, mate. The, in terms of how we view carbon, and and the word we use there is co-benefit. That it, that revenue stream that we'll generate from and are generating from carbon is a co-benefit to our beef production business. Mm. Our beef production business has to be profitable first and foremost. Um, it's not going to be you know a supplementary income that props up the beef business. That's not an excuse for us not to make money from livestock production. Um, the, we don't have, we actually don't have carbon anywhere on our budget or our PL. We've we've probably got to write it in the next year, but mm. there's been some expenses and some some income from it, so we've got to scratch it in there somewhere. But um, you know, it's it's as I say, it's been a co benefit of our beef production business and uh, and that's how we'll we'll view it. I think the good news there, one of the good news is that and we were talking about it again last night, you guys are demonstrating the sequestration of carbon from the atmosphere into your soil and staying there and that 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 allows you then to, to to jump into the into the into the marketplace because it's a it's a it's there's value there's a value on that carbon and you're able to um, uh, leverage that and that's all happening on farm right? yeah yeah as opposed to um, uh, the notion of um, uh, measuring um, emission, from a farm or a situation and offsetting that by um, uh, buying, um, paying for um, offsets elsewhere um, 
and that being it's a it's a totally different transaction, but the, it's it's more about the the the, the headspace, the decisions that are made around, and the and the and the um the um the uh, allaying of guilt as it were, yeah. around you know that carbon production. And it's interesting, and I think what you're doing, as opposed to going, oh well, I'm emitting this much, and I'm going to plant trees in India to offset it. What you're doing is your your whole focus is is on farm and what you're doing on farm. Yeah, exactly. And, and food is for, for in, in as you say, co the co benefit there is that's food production. Yeah. What um, just on that as a you know managing that situation, it's interesting because I struggle with the commoditization of carbon. I'm, I'm not sure where to sit. I'm very open-minded about it all, and I think there's a real, there's a real um, opportunity for to, 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 you know, I am going to, and I want to have a chat with you at some other time about because given the, the research you've been doing, saved me having to do three years of it. Um, <laughs> I've been watching it for 15 years trying to work it out. <laughs> I remember going to the first one, a little course in um, in Young. Um, it would be 15, 14 years ago now, Just in, and, I, and it felt like it, what I've been dipping in and out of for the last 14 years, there's been some change, but it's still there's still a fair bit of greyness there. Yep. But um, in terms of the priority or the the focus, you know, you're focusing on, um, and this is again for the benefit, hopefully, of other farmers in you know, you know situation considering it. Yeah, you know, you're focusing on, um, I'm producing good beef. How do I do that? I, I I graze them in a particular way, and I've got some other management sort of principles in place that then creates carbon. Then I can then sell, as opposed to there's bloody money to made in this carbon. How do I put that in there? Oh, I've got to you know there's some way. Oh, I, I need to graze animals in a certain way. Oh, and shit, they they happen to be. It's a better. It's a better sort of. It's a better type of food. You know what I mean? Yep. There's, there's yep. two. It's the same flow, but it's going different ways. Yeah, absolutely. And and like I say, our, our core focus is on our beef production business and grazing management. And probably the critical thing here for people to understand, and going back to your point around um, uh, how we make that calculation around our emissions versus our offsetting that and so forth, is that um, within this, within any carbon. Um, Scheme, which I don't particularly like that word, but they are all schemes, I suppose, for want of a better word. Uh, there is this thing in there called practice change, and all these carbon schemes have come out of the Paris Agreement um, and and the um, COP, I suppose it was, whatever that stood for. Uh, um, so I have to look it up. CAP, CAP, you know where all the world leaders get together and. Oh yeah, something like anyway. Yeah, they all have. They all come they out. Of that they'll burn a heap of bloody carbon That's to get, right. get over <laughs> exactly there. Right. So, uh, <laughs> but they're all about that. It's all based on practice change. So they want people to to start doing something different that leads to better ecological outcomes, mm. and the reward for doing that is more carbon in our soil, or or more carbon, less carbon going in the atmosphere. Uh, if it's a veg project or a savannah burning or something like that, doing something differently. So, in the savannah burning example, it was around. Um, you know, landholders up north um, burning uh, country in the early dry season such that it was a much cooler burn and there was less emissions as opposed to letting that country burn late dry season where it smoked everything, new, pardon the pun, uh, and emitted a lot more. Mm. So that's a, the practice change was actually culturally burning earlier rather than letting it burn mm. later. Mm. 
Um, so an example in the soil carbon um, method is um, gra- a change in grazing management, the intensification of grazing, they call it, where um, moving from a set stock system or a, or a low rotation system to um, a more intensive planned grazing system um, at higher density, you know, move, moving more frequently, uh, increased rest periods. By doing that, the landscape will become healthier. Um, the resilience of the landscape will improve uh, the... And, and how that's measured is through an increase in carbon levels in our soil um, because we're producing more biomass, we're creating a more perennial system, um, you know, deeper-rooted plants, uh, increase in the diversity um, in that sward. Um, and so uh, the, the carbon credit is, is kind of the, um, the reward at the end of it. That's, the, that's what you uh, then have to sell as a, you know, in addition to the animals that you've produced. Um, so that's very much how we see it. And, and I suppose that's something that people have got to, get, have got to recognise that if they want to participate in any of these carbon um, methods, uh, they will have to undertake something new and different, mm. um, which is, uh, that's not a bad thing. It's a, it, it, because, it, like I said, they're all designed around creating better ecological outcomes. Um, things like uh, converting cropland to grazing land, and which is what we're doing at um, Morocco, where... Because the climate has changed, and and um, some of that more marginal cropland that we've we cropped, you know, started cropping forty or fifty or sixty years ago, um, when seasons were more reliable and and before we'd had such an impact on our climate, was good cropping country, mm. and now it's far less reliable, which means that it's um, less financially uh, reliable, which means um, greater reliance on government support. So the government sort of saying, well, you know, actually now, unfortunately, because the climate's changed, um, you know, these there's areas of Australia now that are um, not suited to cropping as they were a few decades ago. Uh, so, you know, if you participate in one of these methods um, and convert that back to pasture land to a grazing system um, that's lower risk, um, then, you know, we'll reward you for that. Mm. Mate, I'm just looking at the time there. You've got to get going west. So just to just to just to um, uh, clarify, Morocco, not the not the um, the place in the northwest of Africa. We're talking about the name of a property um, as part of the, the Wilmot Cap- Cattle Co um, uh, portfolio yep. up to here. Just yep. at Gunnedah, so a couple of hours from here. Just, <laughs> just going. What is flying? He's he's bloody contributing to the emission of carbon. Yeah. By flying to Morocco, um, grazing country over there, um, you've got to go west. I've got to go north um, very shortly. But before we go, mate, we could. There's another hour. I've got. I haven't even asked half my bloody questions. Um, but mate, let's finish on. You've you're, you've got an opportunity to put a billboard up on the New England Highway just behind us here um, that everyone can see, and you have the opportunity to put a quote, a statement, a question. Up there, what would you put up there? You can't put rude pictures. <laughs> <laughs> this is a theme that I'm uh, a recurring theme amongst podcasts is these quirky questions that they. Oh, hey, mate, I stole yeah. it from Tim Ferriss. <laughs> I'm just waiting for him to steal one of my questions. <laughs> it's never going to happen. What I like people to understand, or um, oh, I'll tell you what, and it's probably appropriate for today is, um, and this is 
it comes back to people, uh, is be kind. Would be it. That's very um, good. Today is actually Dolly's dream day. Dolly's day. Let's talk. Let, did, did, tell us about that. So um, Dolly Everett was a young girl from the Northern Territory who um, took her own life a few years ago uh, after being at boarding school in um, southern Queensland. Uh, and today is a commemoration of her day. So um, the other reason that I'm wearing the shirt, there's a bit of most people are wearing a blue shirt today. There's a bit of plenty of blue through this one uh, for for Dolly and. Um, uh, the day is all about being kind to others, and and I think as a society, if we can be kinder, uh, we'll all get along a lot better, and all we'll lead much happier lives. And um, again, comes back to bloody pride and ego, the two most powerful things in the world. It's what starts world wars, and it's what stops neighbours talking to each other. Um, and you know, getting over ourselves and accepting everyone for who they are, and and just being kind to each other. Uh, and I, you know, if you take that into a broader um, Producer consumer context that uh, if we all just have a bit of respect for each other and, and a bit of acknowledgement of the role we each play um, in the world and and uh, and treat each other with a bit of kindness, I think we'll we'll um, improve that relationship between consumer and, and producer. Yeah, and, bit of, and and also I just add to that: um, uh, be kind to as farmers and also to. And to consumers, and, and for consumers to sort of give the feedback and the support to farmers, is compassion. Yep. Compassion, yep. which is a form of kindness. It's pretty much the same thing, just a different spelling. Um, being kind, you know, um, do no harm. That's two people and landscape, and reverence for both. Reverence for life, you know, as a human being and, and their their own journey, and also reverence for um, for the landscape that we. That we are caretakers of, yep. you know, yep. and showing compassion and gratitude to that. Yep. Um, I think it's a it's a wonderful thing for for farmers to. Bloody um, cameras dying again. A wonderful thing for farmers to consider in their day when they step out of their off the off the veranda yep. with their boots on and the day in front of them to consider their relationship with landscape and and other people. Yep, and themselves. Be kind to yourself. Mm. Mm. Don't you know we're Again, get over ourselves and, and recognise that we don't have all the answers, we don't know everything and every day is a learning journey and, and every day we make mistakes and, and the important thing is to learn from. We can't change the past and, and um, focus on what you can control. Good call. Stu, that's been wonderful. Um, we might have to do this again another time, just as a bit of an update on whatever, whatever sure. happened. And yeah, uh, may you have a lovely day out west. I'll be going north for another interview this morning before I keep going north and... Um, yeah, but it's been an honour and, and a real pleasure there this morning. Thank Stu. you, mate. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. And uh, I was just reflecting there a minute ago that uh, I don't think I've ever told my whole story in as much detail as I have. So hopefully people get through it. Uh, mate, they will. And that's boring. that's the idea. You know, if I can if I can put you know something in that coffee to make you loosen up a bit, which I've done. No, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> is a truth serum. Is That's actually the sunset out there. It's actually <laughs> seven o'clock in the afternoon, five o'clock in the afternoon. My God, it's twelve hours later. What have I done? Um, mate, that was fun. We'll, yep. we'll uh, and we'll catch up soon too. Yeah, I hope. Thank you. you. Yeah. Thanks, mate. Thanks, Charlie. Good on you.
And next week on The Regenerative Journey, uh, you'll be listening to, and I'll be speaking with, Melissa Brown uh, from Gemtree um, Wines down there in the McLaren Vale in South Australia. She is a cracker um, with her um, her story, her regenerative journey um, uh, into the world of biodynamic wine growing. And I hope you enjoy uh, that episode as much as I did with Melissa Brown on The Regenerative Journey. This podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share, rate and review. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au.